Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. G'day, it's Dan Illich here from Irrational Fear. This, once again, is not an irrational fear. No, this is something very special. Back in September, we had our 10-year anniversary for the very beginning of Hungry Beast, which was an incredible show on the ABC that um, myself and many of the people you might listen to or watch on in Australian media um, got their start. So we had a live show, and I thought I'd share that live show with you here on the Irrational Fear feed. And sorry, we've been a bit tired with um, Irrational Fears. It's just that uh, I've been working on a mega project with Mark Humphreys. It's a eight-part series uh, for Audible. It's a narrative comedy, and you are going to love it. And um, hopefully I can share some of it with you a little later on. But right now, enjoy this Hungry Beast 10-year reunion show. It was really good fun. Hello, and welcome to Hungry Beast. Tonight we try a new drug and ask ourselves why a substance called nostalgia is so addictive to people over 30. And we also interview a group of former young people and ask them, how many regrets do they have? And then after an hour of navel-gazing, we will do our best impression of Andrew Denton. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Hungry Hungry Beast Live! The 2011 World Air Sex Champion will be crowned in Texas later this year. Welcome to Hungry Beast Live! Oh my god, who would have thought 49 people would like to see this show? There's Fantastic. more people on stage than there are in the crowd. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah we, 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 I think there's 20 of us. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, just about Can I just double, get a show right? of hands? How many of you are related to people on the stage? That'll do. Okay, so five of you. Um, Really fantastic. Anyway, welcome to the show. This is great. Let's start off from down the end. Down the far end, we've got Mark Fennell. Hi, everyone! 
I wasn't joking about the drinking part. I'm here. We've got Nick McDougal. You may not have seen Nick a lot on television, but he is very crucial to the process. An editor, a creative genius, a director. Uh, and then next is someone who all those adjectives have no meaning to whatsoever. <laughs> it's Lewis Hubbard. We've got Kirk Docker. Daniel Keogh. Nicholas Hayden. Veronica Milsom. Mon Shafter. Kirsten Drysdale. Scott Donald Mitchell. And I'm Daniel Nice yeah! to be here. Well, this is great. How do you guys feel? Ten years. How does it feel knowing this group of people for ten years? Old. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly terrifying, but really exciting. And also, like, it's so weird because we haven't been on air for so long. We always assume, I know when we all talk about it, that no one ever cares anymore. And you forget that anyone cared to begin with. So it's very nice to see you. Thank it, you so much for coming. It turns out 49 to people do care. <laughs> Now, let's talk about how we got to this show. Can anyone take us back to when this show started, where you first saw it? Um, maybe let's, let's start with you, Nick Hayden. How did you find out about Project Next? I was fired from the job I was doing, which was working um, as an editor and director in a production company, and I was just like, Jesus, what the fuck am I going to do now? <laughs> um, also, and then, then I, it was on some website, and I uh, applied for it, and I wrote my... This, it was an application that was, what, maybe... Yeah, which seemed like quite pages. a lot Kirk, for can somebody you tell who'd studied media, a lot of writing. Kirk, can you um, tell us about that application? Yeah, like, what did it look like? It was like? the largest application known to humankind. <laughs> 16 pages, you had to list all your different media influences, you had to answer all these questions, you had to shoot a bit of content, and then you had to arrive at this interview. Can we go to the interview stage already? Sure. arrive at the interview where you were interrogated by a panel of five or six people, then thrown into a fake set where you had to um, pretend to interview Malcolm Turnbull, who was yes. played by Andy Neal, yes. um, which was filmed. And then they dumped you into a room full of props and said, here's a video camera, you have to shoot a story on this video camera that we will assess to see if you're actually on the show. And after that sort of hour and a half of interrogation, you sort of walked out in a daze and went... Fire out. What the fuck happened? 500, yeah. 500 people after? doing this and I think that's going to be the end of the process. I and cried I immediately after for ages. <laughs> Did anyone else? And I think it's important to note that when you showed up to that interview having mailed off this thing to something called Project Next, no one had any idea that waiting for you in that interview room was Andrew Denton who had just come off enough rope and was maybe the most famous interviewer in Australia. Mm. You just walked in and he was asking you questions for two hours. You were literally enough roped in the room. Like, you would sit there. No, I'm not joking. You would sit there and there's a bunch of other people and, and then at some point he starts asking you questions. You're like, why do I feel the urge to cry? <laughs> and then, oh, fuck, tears are happening. Oh, my God, he's really that good. Fuck. The whole thing I, is a complete blur. Mon? I remember um, one of those other challenges that we were given, like interviewing Turnbull. I think we had to, like talk down the barrel of the camera and ad-lib about the G20 summit for about five minutes. It was, like, it was like it was live to air and I think I talked for about 30 seconds and just ran out of stuff to say. And they're like, keep going, you're live to air. And I was um, doing boxing training at the time, so I thought, oh, shit, all right, I'll start talking about boxing. And I started, like, demonstrating how to do a punch and, like, they seemed to be going, yeah, just keep going, keep going. It's like, Jesus. 
I had to ad-lib about carbon credits. <laughs> I was also, um, I found out much later on, maybe after the third season, that I was actually the first person interviewed amongst... Oh, really? I don't know how many they did. So you kind of set the bar, and everyone yeah. was like, either better or Which worse Which is why you guys yeah, all got in like, well, they can't get any worse than this fucker. But I ended up playing both Malcolm Turnbull and myself. I had like full... Sp- I think I, I had like full split personality where I started doing the... And what do you think about this? Well, I think this about this. It... God help us if that footage is It's actually is ever a found. faithful portrayal of how he turned out. <laughs> do I, do I, any of you guys remember what you shot your video on? The video in the props room? Oh, was it video eight? Hey? Was it video eight? Was it high eight? I can't even remember how the camera worked. I don't remember anything about it other than I had some bag of cornflour and a garden gnome. <laughs> and I have no idea what my story was about. I remember about like after the end of the first season, I think we'd had a few drinks at the rap party and I, was, and I finally had the confidence to like approach a man half my size with Andrew Denton and I was like Andrew the fuck was that application about I was fucked it took me weeks I was very busy and he's just like yeah we wanted like we put in questions we didn't give a shit about we just we we put in stuff we wanted the first step for the process to be who the fuck will finish this thing well and I remember in particular, like, I set up really uh, wild expectations for myself because apart from, like, sending through the application, I also sent through a postcard every day for 30 days (laughs) in the lead-up that said Veronica Milsom's application is coming. So when I eventually... Which actually is just a a great thing to do if anyone's applying for a job because it gets you noticed. Is it, though? (laughs) I got the fucking job. But, um, But it also sets up wild expectations that they should look forward to you coming <laughs> well I've actually got oh Dan oh, my, my one to one up as well was to guilt trip them so at the time I was um, studying in Bristol the UK so you know they offered to do the Skype side of things and I was like no nah, I'm gonna fly across so I flew across for three days just to do the interview and be there and I'm pretty sure that just guilt tripped him um, <laughs> flew back to the UK so yeah that was my way of kind wait, of wait you flew I'm, back yeah I just assumed that like you'd moved a flight for to accommodate it no, and then I, you were yeah. coming back anyway when you're a Greens candidate do you hate the planet <laughs> yeah I know Look, looking back not, not the best investment. Times have changed. Times have changed. As we'll discuss later on, times have changed. We can't do those things anymore. Dan, I believe I came out of my interview and you were waiting in the foyer. Yeah, so we I actually do remember crossed paths mid-interview. Yeah. What did I look like when you I came was, up? Yeah, you were in a real state. Like, yeah, right. You didn't look like you had a great time. <laughs> one person in that filmed thing, uh, one of the members who isn't here today, just totally lost his mind and broke down and did his whole thing about how he just fucking couldn't do it. Really? Is that oh, Aaron? Have you, you've seen I'm not going to name names. It was Aaron Smith. Well, I've actually, got, um, I've actually got a sample of some of that audition room. No! Would you like to see it? Okay, this is a start. Hello. Hello. Hello there, children. And welcome to Jesus Alive. To Captain Funny Pants's funny show. I'm Andrew Jenkins. You may remember from shows that made the ABC popular again, like Enough Rope and The Chaser. Oh, God, forgive me. Unfortunately, this time, I've really, really fucked up. 
It was not going to be easy. A program all about the Jesus within us and all around us. If I get this job, I promise to be vastly less of an idiot. Um, so this is the story about me not coming up with a story and why I haven't come up with a story. As I said, I'm not really a captain. Here's what I think has happened here. It's not slick and nice. So who do we blame? Young males? Sure. But also, unemployment. Shady's back. Back again. Remember that Andrew O'Keefe video? Fuck the blues, yo! Ah, I'm so drunk. Going down the hard road. It shoots out of its nose and you operate it for some pieces underneath. If I had a black screen and some text, there'd be a little thing that said, uh, uh, three months later. Looks like it's just you and me, Trevor. Mum, I'm really, it's so, really missed you so much. I have to go, I have to go to Pure in a sandwich. Okay, goodbye, be good, son. Apparently a lot of people are still waiting for your return to Earth. Okay, bye. This isn't about populism, this is about democracy. What we know now is that something like this is going to happen in the not-too-distant future. This process could spark a revolution for those who have forgotten about God's omniscience. What would you use that for? I mean, oh my God, I just realised what he uses this for. <laughs> I have to wash my hands. A courageous man who, against all odds, has survived for almost 20 years trapped under the weight of the Australian media's bullshit. And as far as torturous, horrible experiences go, I think it was only about a seven. I'm convinced that I'm slowly losing my mind. I don't know what I'm doing here yet. Sure, the filmmaking efforts were a bit dodgy. There was torrential rain, snowstorms, a giant rat. But let's face it, there was a little bit of Kubrickian genius in there. <gasps> On that uh, rather smoky note. That is it for the show. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Ali Russell. My name's Dan Ellick. I'm Aaron Smith. I'm Daniel Keogh. I'm Kirsten Dreister. I'm Nicholas Hayden. Well, this has been Nicholas Badoogle. I am Elmo Keogh. Jessica Curtis. Patrick Clare. Ah! Monique Shafter. Scott Mitchell. Kieran Riggins. Who's this? As Adam Hills would say, say hi to your mum for me. <laughs> That's it? Yeah. Wild. Can you remember the time you found out that you got the job and how did you feel? Kirsten? Uh, yeah, I remember. I definitely thought they'd called the wrong person. <laughs> I 100% thought they had made a mistake and I just waited for them to call me back and acknowledge it. <laughs> I remember I was walking down uh, Johnson Street in uh, Fitzroy and I, I was also uh, going through job applications at the project because the project was just starting up at about the same time and they were asking me to, to direct the project and I didn't really want to direct the project. Um, so you then... backed the right horse, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> is that... And where is that show? You know? I don't know. Is that show still going? I'm not too sure. Um, and so uh, I, I got a phone call and it was Andrew and he said... And I, see, I emailed the producers of the films and I said, oh, look, the project want me to direct... Um, just where's my application at? Because I'd rather do this show than do the project. And Andrew called up and said, uh, hello, Dan. Uh, it's, it's Andrew Denton here. Uh, congratulations, I hear the project is going to offer you a job. <laughs> and he said, don't take it. And, uh, and I didn't. Uh, and it was great. It was really, really, really great. Oh, I was so over the moon when I, when I got that phone but call. But it's also terrifying. So many of us came from interstate, so it meant a whole upheaval of our lives. And um, one thing that was really cool when the ABC had heaps of money a decade ago, apparently, um, was that we all got... The interstaters got put up in a hotel for a month of training, which was crazy. Like, it was the best experience ever. Mon and I were um, 
flatmates in our hotel. I think your mum joined us and my girlfriend joined us at the time yeah. as well. Um, sometimes Nick joined us as well, but we won't go into that. Oh, we'll Lewis. get to that, don't worry. Lewis and I lived uh, in, in a similar apartment and Scott sort of came on board and then Lewis moved in with Scott and they used to live in the one bedroom apartment together, walk to work together, sit next to each other at work, didn't know anyone in Sydney, so walk back home together, have dinner together, sleep in the one bedroom apartment together. Before the three of us ended up getting a house for what, six years? Yeah. And don't you all own a share in that house now? <laughs> is there anyone left there? Just Kirk. Uh, Kirk, Kirk, are you still there? I'm still there, same oh. house. <laughs> Ten years. Let's yeah. talk about process and kind of putting the show together. Uh, you mentioned money before about how the, the show was incredibly well resourced to, to a point. I remember we wrote a sketch with a bobsled. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to take that, Lewis? Like, because here's like we didn't, we'd never worked in television before. That was like the prerequisite for most of us. None of us had ever knew what the fuck we was doing. But at one point we had... Dad a, and I should have known better. Yeah, a mentor um, from The Chaser, Chris Taylor. And they had come off a long bit of success. And so they really could just write their own checks on their show. So we would write these things and we're like, oh, we'll get like a, bo- a box and we'll slide down a thing. And Chris Taylor would go, just get them to ship a bobsled from Melbourne. <laughs> and we'd go, no, they can't do that. And he'd go, just write it in. <laughs> and then you'd write it in. And they'd ship a fucking bobsled from Melbourne. So they did. A yellow bobsled, specifically, if I recall And it was on screen for third, like, three seconds. Three seconds. I believe the joke was the Sochi Olympics and the Sochi Olympics not having any snow. And so we put a... We put a, a... Bobsled from Melbourne on a hill in Moore Park. And also it's a <laughs> for three seconds to, to show that there was no snow in Sochi. We would, n- I re- would never do that again, by the way. What a waste of effort. But like, also it's a testament to the Hungry Beast producers who aren't on stage today but who are fucking dynamite, the most incredible people we've ever worked with, that they could get a bobsled from Melbourne to Sydney in half a day. It was crazy. <laughs> now Jared Henderson's going to hate listen to this podcast and write a column about it in The Australian. Um, what about story meetings when we were pitching stories? Do you have any great yarn? from that. Do you remember the process of getting a story up on, on screen? It was the worst um, thing I've ever done every single time. I have blacked that entire part out <laughs> completely. Um, you, you were quite prolific though, Kirsten. Like You got a lot of good stories up. Did I? Yeah. <laughs> You'd have to tell me about them. <laughs> Uh, basically, I found it terrifying because um, uh, Denton had such high expectations and uh, none of us knew how to make TV. And so he was constantly disappointed that we weren't better at it. <laughs> I, um, um, so it was just a very fast, um, very steep learning curve. I told Andrew this um, a couple of days ago, but there was a point where... Because scripts were getting rewritten so much and Andrew had huge expectations, as you say, that it got to a point where scripts were getting to, like, version 30s yeah. and they weren't getting up. Oh and they were gosh, piling, up, piling up, piling up, piling <laughs> up. Don't talk us. about it. Don't fucking look at me. None of you fucking look at me. I know what you... No. I don't have that video. It's okay. It's there it, because the thing in question was never made. <laughs> well, it was made, Mark. Yeah, it, was. it was made. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. We but, should put some context around this for people that aren't on the stage. I wrote a script that... Thank you for giggling up the back. That's one of the producers. It was called Ugly and Endangered. And it was... The idea was that why can people raise money for cute animals but not ugly animals? So I it's would still go, a great idea. You should make it. Stop it. <laughs> I won't so tell I, you about the story. that will be on 7.30 next week, but anyway. I think I, that story's been on the project, the feed, about 12 other shows. I wrote, it, I wrote it for three years. I wrote it for three years. 
I wrote 12 versions. Like, I would write a draft to send it to Andrew. Andrew would send it back. I did 12, that 12 times. Then we shot a version. Sent it to Andrew. He said, scrap it, start again. <laughs> Went back, wrote another 18 drafts. Got to draft 30. And this is literally over a 12-month period because we're shooting TV. I f- and it just became this thing where everyone's like, how's Ugly and Endangered going, Lewis? I'm like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> and eventually at the very, like, I gave up. I'm like, fuck you, Andrew, never. <laughs> and then right at the end of the third season, he's like, I think we should write Ugly and Endangered again. <laughs> I'm like, oh, you're fucking endangered, mate. <laughs> and so then I left it and I never stopped thinking about it. And then another show he produces called The Gruen Transfer... Use the idea on the pitch! <laughs> Kurt, you've got a script here of a, of a story that never got up. I do. This is, uh, <clears throat> this is actually script number one of... Uh, I don't know how many scripts we ended up doing in the end, but this was the official script number one, Noxing. I don't know if you remember the story at the time. <laughs> that laugh was um, Andy Neal, serious <laughs> producer. The Deadly Elixir, uh, which was mixed football players back when they used to do fun things like... Um, Mix still knocks with Red Bull as opposed to, you know, piss in their mouths. Um, we decided we'd try out Noxing. This is actually the, the final script, version 12, so I got out lightly. Um, which never made it to air, never got past Ed Pohl or the legal team because to do this you had to get a prescription of still knocks, which you had to lie about. And um, the only way to get it was to do that. And, and ultimately they decided that snorting still knocks and drinking Red Bull to see if it would get you high and prove if it was right was not something they wanted to put on television. Uh, I've actually got... Um, Risk it was actually the first script. ABC lawyers. I mean, come now, on. Now, Kurt, it was actually the first script that was set, set to production, right? Because yes. this, this is the call sheet here. Yes. And I love this is the call sheet of the very first script we ever did on Hungry Beast. And there's a note at the end of the call sheet and it says here... Uh, this is from Ed Pohl, editorial policy of the ABC. There seems to be a few editorial issues with this script <laughs> that would need to be addressed before shooting. Uh, please discuss with Andy. <laughs> I just love that. But one of the best um, fell over stories was yours, Keo. Remember that? Yeah. So I was going to bring that up, but it, it was a, a segment which was um, demonstrating uh, what happens to the female brain during orgasm using a choir. So we we got like a Sydney uh, like a Sydney Philharmonic or something like something serious to uh, sing the slave chorus to the brain having an orgasm. And then it turns out, because the slave chorus sounds really old, I was like, sure, it's out of copyright, but it turns out it's not. So we shot the whole thing, edited it, and then, you know, on the day of um, broadcast, we found out we don't actually have the rights to this music and, yeah, just had to bin it. So that whole choir Um, got really excited. Can we go round to your house and watch it? I don't know where it is. I would love to know, but hey. All right. Um, oh, Kirsten, you got I one? just wanted to jump in because Scott was actually going to um, tell a story about how the rest of us learned from uh, the uh, foolishness of you guys going through 18 or 30 drafts. And we got to the point where we would just send Andrew a draft that was already at version 8 <laughs> from the beginning. So I, that- I actually <laughs> remember upping the number. On the top of the document. Yeah. So it had already kind of created the impression and then that it had been through a few back different versions. Version 12, and then by version 16, it was good to go. Yeah, I think, so. I think your versioning happens in like dog years. You know, you just sort of add like, you know, a prime number. I can't fucking believe you kept that to yourself, Kirsten. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
wasn't it wasn't just me. Uh, it, it was, was war. It was war in there. It was like it was the original reality TV show. I mean, we it, just it, thought it, that one day it would happen because it was a good idea. It did happen just on a completely separate TV show. If anybody at this moment is wondering why the show didn't get a fourth season. <laughs> Well, uh, Scott, I want you to take us through uh, how Hungry Beast ended up on the ABC before our first episode even aired. Yeah, we're here to celebrate the 10th anniversary of going to air, but we were actually on our first... We were, I believe, the first show to be on Media Watch before we ever had an episode. (laughs) Now, should you believe what you read on newspaper websites or hear on the radio? MediaWatch viewers know that the answer is frequently no. But according to an outfit called the Levitt Institute, too many people do. It recently put out this report. Deception detection across Australian populations. Last Sunday, a media release about the research was picked up by Australian Associated Press. Its story was widely run on news websites around the country. Sydney, the most naive city, study finds. Have you heard the one about Captain Cook and his three wives? As the Levitt Institute's Lauren Kennedy told the ABC in Brisbane next morning... We took uh, around 1,000 25 to 35-year-olds from five different states and we got them to read 15 different articles that were based on Australian history, five of which were complete fabrications. So... I'm talking about Richie Benno serving in the Senate. Uh, Australia's first Prime Minister was an atheist. Uh, so Captain James Cook had three wives, that kind of thing. Sydney siders were the most gullible, Melburnians the least. The sort of comparison that's bound to get a silly survey like this plenty of coverage. And indeed, the Levitt Institute did well. Around 33 radio stations, plus Fairfax and News Limited websites, gave it a run. It even made it onto Ten's bright new news comedy show, The 7pm Project. Now, in a report out today, uh, we found that young Australians are extremely gullible. News website Crikey's deputy editor, Sophie Black, said we shouldn't believe all we read. Once upon a time, you'd read it in the newspaper and you knew that a hundred different fact-checkers had checked the story, a (laughs) sub-editor, an editor. But these days, information and news is put up so quickly uh, that, uh, you know, there's no-one there to check it. Ah, Sophie, how true. And certainly, none of these worthy news outlets seems to have bothered to check up on the Levitt Institute. But as the web enthusiasts say, the media may get more stuff wrong these days, but it doesn't stay wrong for long. That same day, MediaWatch received an email from a very savvy viewer about... What appears to be a lovely, self-fulfilling hoax. Our tipster had checked up on the Levitt Institute. Though it claims to have been founded in 2007... I established that their domain, www.levittinstitute.org, was only registered on 8 September this year. The tipster then googled the name of the Institute's founder, Dr Carl Vanson and found very little, except a reference in Wikipedia to a... ..list of Ludwig Maximilian's University of Munich people. (laughs) Where, amid a panoply of Nobel Prize winners and the like, under... ..other notable alumni... ..is the entry... Carl Vanson, public intellectual and leading sociologist in Australia. Public intellectual? How come none of us have ever heard of him? Our tipster pointed out... This reference was added on 11 September 2009. Of course, there was another bloke who used the name Carl Vanson as an alias. 
Would you like to see the rest of the apartment, Mr. Um... Uh, Varnson. Tell Varnson. We did something of our own. We sent a camera along to the Levitt Institute's address in the Sydney suburb of Chippendale. Doesn't look very prepossessing, does it? Locked up and derelict, in fact. And then there's the report itself. In amongst paragraphs of impenetrable mathematical gibberish is this sentence. These results were completely made up to be fictitious material through a process of modified truth and credibility nodes. Enough already. It's all a hoax. A quite elaborate one, designed to make the media look like gullible idiots. Well, it succeeded. And the perpetrator, we found out, was itself a media company, Zapruder's Other Films, part owned by that pillar of rectitude, Andrew Denton. All was due to be revealed on a new show which starts this very week on this very channel. According to Andrew Denton, The Hungry Beast will be... An unusual hybrid of journalism, comedy and something else. Something else like blatant misrepresentation? <laughs> yeah. And proud! Jonathan... I, Jonathan goes for another four minutes, so we'll, we'll cut it there. But, I, but I would love to be scolded by Jonathan Holmes every night. It would just. <laughs> and another really fascinating piece, just sign of the times, really, is that the shot of the location of the Levitt Institute, the address we gave it, is now smack bang in the middle of Spice Alley <laughs> in Chippendale. So it down doesn't here. look like that anymore. Now, Scott, you've got a little something to add to this. Yeah, yeah. I, I like to think that Jonathan just gave us a bit of a kick there because we were going to air for our first episode two nights later and he couldn't give us a totally free plug. Um, but just a few quick things about that. Um, first, the way we got it in all the newspapers is we actually sort of paid the Australian Associated Press um, via a subsidiary called MediaNet. Um, and there's no guarantee that if you pay them, you'll get coverage, but pretty good chance. Um, and they actually reviewed their policies after this. The second thing is that... We're making the world a better place. <laughs> yeah. The other thing is that making it sound like it's this elaborate, crazy deception, like, it was much less deceptive than what corporates and lobbyists do every day to get reports through and push it to media. And um, the whole point that we were trying to make is, if we could get this through, imagine what gets through every single day. And then finally, we ended up interviewing the guy that tipped off MediaWatch. We actually interviewed him, and he said that it took him 10 minutes to figure it out. <laughs> Why um, didn't we hire that guy? <laughs> totally. He works on the project. Um, <laughs> but um, despite feeling very good about the story still 10 years later, I do have pangs of guilt about one person, and that is um, Sophie Black, deputy editor of Crikey, um, amazing journo, now uh, works with the Wheeler Centre and all kinds of people. And so I did write her an apology letter for tonight. <sighs> Dear Sophie Black, um, I'm sure you haven't thought about this for like 10 years, but I have had pangs of guilt for making you look silly 60 seconds um, 10 years ago. Um, first, if it's any consolation, Hungry Beast definitely made me look stupider than it ever made you look. <laughs> Second, when I uh, pitched this prank, I was a desperate, desperate man. I was a baby when I got Hungry Beast. I was the youngest person chosen. I was 20 years old, had never worked in media. Um, and that's not to say I didn't have some things going for me as a selection. I had a burgeoning career as the annoying guy in tutorials in philosophy at Sydney <laughs> Uni. Um, and I'd also just quit my first job at Gloria Jeans. Um, so I went to our first meetings together with a, that kind of level of confidence that was way too high. Um, 
Andrew Denton and Anita Jacoby, Paul Kruger, Andy Neal, John Casimir would show us all these references to inspire us about the format in those early meetings. And I remember after one of them I said, well, that was the worst conceived piece of TV I have ever seen. Um, not realising that that piece of TV belonged to Andy Neal, our supervising producer who was in the room, Attitude in 1993. It was um, a way better show and way better than anything or any of the hazelnut lattes I had produced up until that point. <laughs> but uh, I was even getting the sense at that point that Andrew Denton, who was at the time, like, you know, rated the most likeable man at TV, was beginning to lose his patience with me. Um, I remember one time um, giving us a bit of a pep talk as we were all freaking out about the first episode approaching. He said, we saw something in those videos you sent us all. We saw something in you. And I said, except for mine. And he coldly said... Yes. <laughs> Except for Scots. It was actually quite terrible. Um, I hadn't felt that much disapproval since Mr. Kim, my franchise owner, spotted me scoffing a whole spinach feta roll in my mouth hiding behind the coffee machine. And it was soon after that that I f came up with the idea of doing this and pitched it. And to his credit, Andrew Denton said, I like it. 20-year-old Scott Mitchell go and prank the entire Australian media to his eternal, eternal credit. But while I'm at apologising to Sophie, I want to thank Dan Keogh, Veronica Milsom, Kirsten Drysdale and Dan Illick, who spotted that I was drowning at this point and had no idea what the hell I was doing and really carried it all. Dan wrote the report, Veronica answered all those calls super early in the morning and Dan, who's like, well, you know... Best prankster in Australia, Dan Illich. Um, uh, but that was like the kind of crew that we, we were and we, we bailed each other out numerous, numerous times and that's what I sort of really, really love about it. And it was actually quite brave of them because that was the first impression that the Australian media had of us was sort of laughing in their faces and a lot of people weren't really happy about it. And um, they all put their faces to it and they put their names to it with me and we were sort of all in it together as a unit by then, we really stuck it to everyone at the first glance. But one person we shouldn't have stuck it to was Sophie Black and the Project, <laughs> who were absolutely on the right side of what was going on in the Australian media at that point, and one of the few other places that were encouraging young people and had, it turns out, a much longer lifespan doing <laughs> that than we ever did. So, um, 10 years too late, from an entitled little fuckwit 20-year-old Scott Mitchell to Sophie Black, great editor, interviewer, and person. I'm very, very sorry. Yeah. That was great, Scott. Um, one of the interesting things about the... Uh, since we, we got past auditions and we were getting ready to do this show in the pre-production period, we had uh, weeks and weeks of... or two weeks, rather, of an intensive kind of two weeks together in, in Ultimo learning from the best of the best people coming in to teach us. We had, like, John Safran come in, Mark Texter came in, loads of other massive names came in, and that was a really amazing experience. Did you guys uh, have any favourites from that time? There was the PR guy who was hired by my school that had a major sex scandal. Is that yeah, there was a. I was the one. The number one thing I remember. I went to a school where there was a giant rape scandal, and this was the PI the Anaconda? guy. Yeah, and this was the PI guy that the school hired to basically cover her up. And I was like, "Cool, lovely to meet you. You're evil." We also had Catherine Lumby, I think, come who did yeah. the same thing for the NRL. Yeah. Their yeah. sex scandals. There were, it was a weird time because it was like we're all dear friends and love each other very much, but it was quite a competitive atmosphere. 
And, and that went through the entire way. I would sometimes a healthy competition, sometimes an unhealthy competition. And I remember, and, and I don't think the producers shied away from that or <laughs> went away from creating that environment. They best idea it. wins. Yeah, best idea wins was the motto, and that was true. But I think there was, like, even moments in that first few weeks where they would go, that it was like, it was full reality TV, but no one was filming it. They'd go walk into this room. Inside the room, there are 15 telephones. On the telephone <laughs> is the number for NASA. The first of you to get through to Buzz Aldrin wins. <laughs> and we just had to fucking try to call Buzz Aldrin. <laughs> like, we're all just caught. And then you get through and they're like, what do you want Buzz Aldrin for? And we're like, to win Andrew's affection. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. I remember Michael Jackson was the one in our class. That we it's had called phone bashing. Yeah, phone bashing. Like but really that was a useful skill. Very but useful skills. Time. Yeah. It was. It was the kid from uh, from one of the Indiana Jones movies. It was like uh, the the kid from the third Indiana Jones movie. That was the one that we had to track oh, down. Really? Yeah. Oh. Did you get him? Well, I can't say. Oh, damn it. <laughs> All right. Well, ten years ago, it was a very different time. Now, t- tastes have changed. Uh, styles have changed. Uh, politics has definitely changed. And there are some things I did in Hungry Beast that I- I'm personally not as proud of now as I-, as I was ten years ago. For the record, Dan Illich is the only one who wants to do this. Anymore, <laughs> so. I've read it. So you know. I've this made is, the slides. This is about to, to become right. How to Cancel We're Dan Illich. We're all about to get cancelled. All right. So I remember in the, uh, in the first episode, I defamed Liz Ellis by claiming that the entire netball team had group sex with me. Uh, then we opened up the second episode by telling everyone it was a joke and they should get over it. Um, and which then, is actually worse. Which, but, uh, yes, but I wouldn't do that today. Uh, I wrote a post-race video all about post-race relations as it was in 2009 and I'm, I forced uh, Lewis and Dan to say the N-word multiple times in the sketch uh, and I made a rap with enormous facetious kind of comments about racial stereotypes. Then we did a parody of the Jackson 5. And then not only blackface, we did redface too. Uh, And then somehow I defamed Maddie Johns in this clip that I'm going to play for you now. I'll I'll blur it. I'll I'll, I'll bleep it out later for the podcast, but... Chat roulette is kind of like going on a date with Maddie Johns. If you're unlucky, you'll get 13 c***s in the first five minutes. Hmm. I don't even know what that means! (laughs) So, like, it's ten years ago... Just stuff doesn't fly anymore. And I wanted to know what stories uh, would you not get away with today? I didn't think that was good at the time. (laughs) (laughs) I wrote a complete takedown of a piece. Like, I did a piece about how I thought copyright was bullshit. A few years later, having written a few books and made a few TV shows, I was suddenly very into copyright. And uh, an opportunity came up to do a complete takedown of a piece I did for Hungry Beast. And I, there's a chapter of a book that I've written where it's just like, I wrote this piece for Hungry Beast and it was bullshit. Please do not pay attention to it. Hmm. At, at, I think it was series one, we had that segment Versus that was like a, a weekly debate about a ridiculous topic. And one week, Veronica and I had a debate about fake lesbians. I think was I, I saying they were cool? Or you, cool? You, you were saying it was cool, oh. and I was saying fake lesbians were bad. And what had motivated this segment, I think, was like Britney and Madonna pashing at the MTV Awards, and it was like such a publicity stunt. But I think what I neglected to realise that there was such a thing as bisexuals, <laughs> and um, that sexuality can be fluid. So I, I kind of watched that the other day and thought, that's really, really bad. Yeah. You were on the right side, Ronnie. <laughs> Oh my god, I loved that they perished. <laughs> Great, I'm happy with that. I think I said a lot of things as Victoria Dynamite, um, the character that I played, like the parody current affairs reporter, 
that I don't regret. Um, but they were still very wrong about um, <laughs> asylum seekers and stuff. But I think I was being on the wrong side. <laughs> Mon and I and Ali Russell, who's not here tonight, did a story about vaginas. Well, it wasn't about vaginas. It was about censorship and it was about the fact that... <laughs> There we go. It was about the fact that graphic designers are forced to do this to pictures of women's uh, genitalia in order to get them um, through the, you know, censorship restrictions into um, porn mags. Now, I'm not sh- entirely sure if we would do anything differently about the story, but the pros- we, we needed photographs of natural lady bits to show in prime, on primetime television on the national broadcaster and we got about 18 to air if I recall correctly but funnily enough stock image libraries don't really um, have a good selection of those kinds of images How did you do this? How, what was the process in getting, getting 18 vaginas on screen? You tell them one. We, um, there was a, a burlesque night at the Red Rattler in no. Marrickville and the three of us went along and we set up a, a photo booth Upstairs and a shaving station and a shaving station because. (laughs) How did I not know that this happened? This happened because we we needed to show enough detail to make the point that we were trying to make real natural lady bits. So, Kirsten and Ellie were upstairs. Ellie was taking pictures, and you were like I was handing out disposable razors and foam, and (laughs) I was the vagina recruiter. So I was on. People were into it because it was for a good cause and, you know, they were unidentifiable except for the, the, there was one with a lot of tattoos, which I'm sure were quite unique. But, um, yeah, so, yeah, sorry, Mike. No, no, but people were on board. Like, you know, it sounds pretty far out, but people actually did it because they were totally, you know, behind the point that we were trying to make. Amazing. That's a great yarn. Fantastic. On the flip side, what is some of the work that you made in, the, in those three seasons of Hungry Beast that you're immensely proud of today? Still proud of. It's a couple of things. I mean, I, I retweet over and over again. <laughs> oh, can I guess? <laughs> All of my favourite shit. But the, the one you like, retweet the, the most is the Liberal Party burning down sketch. Yeah, that's right. So oh, if, it's if just anyone... very lucky that the Liberal Party is still a trash fire and it works <laughs> yeah. every year. It was a sketch Canberra the Musical. Is it, is you it, do that a bit. Canberra the Musical. Oh, Canberra the Musical. Love Canberra the Musical. Uh, I love Canberra the Musical. I love the climate science rap that I made. I also love uh, the... I love the Liberal Party sketch where I say the Liberal Party's a mess and is totally fine and the Liberal Party's burning Well, the best bit about that was um, it was one of the few times we got to use a real stuntman. <laughs> and uh, again, because none of us had made TV before, every time something that was like felt like real TV to us, we were fucking thrilled. Yeah. And uh, that, there was a stunt guy uh, and it was a full stunt coordinator, remember? And he just, he'd worked on Mad Max and he was lighting people on fire. And we I jumped on Mark's back. And it was a family business too, so he was literally lighting his like son-in-law on fire, and you, and you get the sense watching him that like he was enjoying it just a bit too much. And what I love about that sketch is it has a lot of us in it, and there's a great scene where Mon has a chainsaw and she's decapitating someone, and then stands up in the middle of the scene on the back and lifts up the head and goes, "Yeah, that's pretty good." And walks off stage. This is one of my favourite bits. I believe she has to be referred to as Walkley Award winner Mon Shafter. Walkley Award winner Mon Shafter. 
Um, one of the ones that I really love, but it wasn't even mine, I think it was Mark's, is Avatar 2. Or was it McDee's? Uh, well, it? actually, it, I mean, Lewis, McDee, myself, Nick and you, I feel it's, like we all shared a part of that one. It's so good still if you look up Avatar 2, and especially still relevant because the next one hasn't it, been It still made. hasn't come out yet. Yeah. But also it's had like 20 million views or something. Was That, our, that was our first thing that went vi- like properly viral, yeah. was it? Yeah. And we, we had a running joke on the show that we made an OK TV show but a really great YouTube feed, and I think Avatar 2 was probably... The funny thing is the video of Avatar 2 that went massively viral uh, was not the one on our official YouTube yeah. channel, but one, it was huge. One of the things that I was massively proud of from the show was, a lot, of course, a lot of the graphics stuff in our show was really exceptional. Um, Patrick Clare couldn't be here today. He was, he's in Palm Springs uh, licking his wounds from not winning his third Emmy. Okay. Uh, it but should be said that Patrick Craig is undeniably the most successful person yeah, to come from this show. In the show, yeah. We'll get to that again in a second. But Still one of the things I loved was the Stuxnet um, clip that you, that's, that Scott and Pat worked on. I thought there's like a really exquisite story that told it in a way we'd never seen on television before. Yeah, I, I think something that's remembered about the show is that graphical style. And Stuxnet was probably the best version of that. Right towards the end of our run, it was about um, the virus that kind of shut down the Iranian nuclear program for a while. But... For people who don't know, Pat Clare, who designed that and a lot of the graphics, ended up doing the opening titles for Westworld, for True Detective, for some of the biggest TV shows in the world and has won two Emmys for it. And um, he's an incredible, incredible guy and a great storyteller. And you think, like, um, you know, perhaps the public broadcaster could have uh, used a lot of that in the last ten years. <laughs> and didn't, who, didn't some famous director try to turn Stuxnet into a film? Well, Michael Mann. Michael Mann. Pat got an email from Bad Robot, J.J. Abrams' production company after that went to air, and Pat had a conference call with J.J. and then later had a call with Michael Mann about it as well, which is... <laughs> Completely insane from this little show. We all had a conference call with JJ. It was <laughs> um, one thing that, that brings me back for as well, though, like what you had in the situation was you had all of the sort of written people, the people that were shooters, directors, writers, doing all this stuff that they felt was important in uh, Chippendale. But then you had um, the graphics team, which was two people, Luke and uh, Pat, and, and Rob as well. Yeah, we had to, yeah, Rob as well brought on board. But the thing is, we were all like, once an episode was done for us, we were all kicking back and like, you know, celebrating and going, let's watch it all together. And Pat is still putting the show together. Like that, yeah, that crew worked, yeah, tirelessly. He, he chain smoked so hard on like a Wednesday night. Remember, you'd go and see him and he lost weight. It was like, he was like President Obama yeah. over three years. Shrinking and greying by the week. Yeah, he aged like 10 years. It was remarkable. It's what, I mean, Stuxnet was in the very final episode and I remember talking to him and he, he knew that all of the effort he could put into this would be a calling card. I don't think Pat predicted how much yeah. of a calling card it would be because he was immediately propelled overseas into the US and places like that and it was incredible. Yeah, and he's still there now. Right, so Hungry Beast, we've done heaps of stories that basically tell... The, the whole rim of the show is to tell us something you don't know. What stories in the past, though, that we've done need a follow-up, Nick Hayden? Which ones do you think um, should we go back to and revisit? Well... Why don't you just play the clip, Dan, and we'll just stop with the charade. (laughs) (laughs) All right, this is Pigeon vs. Internet. What did you you want to say about this one? Anyway, we're going to play you some clips now. Ready, set, go. Who would get 700 megabytes of classic comedy back to Sydney the quickest? The internet, the automobile, or the carrier pigeon? Oh, yeah. 
Uh, okay, we are uploading now. So far it is at 0.2 of a megabyte. But you know, sometimes these things start slow and, and get faster. Uh, at least that's what I'm banking on. Welcome to Prospect. Come on! Come on! The winners are here! I've got the check right here! Congrats! Um, say hello to Margaret. Uh -huh. Hello. She got here about an hour ago. An hour ago? Why didn't you tell me? Builds dramatic tension. What about the internet, Veronica? Uh, Mark's having a bit of an interesting time, I think. Why? So, you know, with our amazing jokes and journalism, we fixed it. The internet's fantastic now, right? <laughs> I actually read an article this week that's where an expert described the NBN as a hodgepodge of technologies of varying speed, quality and reliability. But the real, the real follow on that story is not the NBN. It's the Pigeon Fanciers Association of uh, Australia haven't updated their webpage in 2016. <laughs> um, uh, let's look at the next one, Dan. All right, this is Google. Meet Google. The noun that became a verb. The world's favourite search engine. The company whose motto is, don't be evil. Intel CEO Andy Grove calls Google, which has a market value of 200 billion US dollars, a company on steroids with a finger in every industry. Google, building an empire on your street, on your phone, in your DNA. Trying very hard not to be evil. Do not be evil. How is that working out for Google? Here we go. Does anyone know what they changed their motto to? No. It was do the right thing. Oh. So it's going to, if you could take the, the Spike Lee film, it's going to end in a race riot. <laughs> right. um, let's have a look at, the, there, there, was, there was a few stories that Hungry Beast did actually do, I think probably for some of the first time in the, in the locally anyway, and one of, one of which yeah. I think is the next one. Yeah, uh, all of these are really cut down too, by the way, these are really short. Its scientific name is the North Pacific Gyre, but today it's better known as the Great Garbage Patch. An area the size of Queensland with 100 million tonnes of plastic spread out across the ocean. Drag a net anywhere in this part of the ocean and in a little while you'll collect a toxic soup of discarded plastic, big and small. So fix that one too. Uh, environment's doing fine. There was no protest today. In, in fact now I think there are five great Pacific garbage patches. In, there is one in the Indian Ocean, there's two in the Atlantic and now there's two in the Pacific. So... Great Pacific garbage patches. We fixed like. that. Yeah, we fixed it again. <laughs> All right, Avatar 2. An experience unlike any other. They may take our lives. Show me the money. But they'll never take our freedom. Avatar 2. Oh, still good. Versus the Deathly Hallows striking back at Muriel's lethal weapon. <laughs> Reloaded. So good. I think we can take credit for the four sequels that are going to follow that. But I think the last one, the air date of the fifth film, will probably be on our 20th reunion. So we can look forward to that. Um, I think All there's right. one more. Vaginas. They're everywhere. Labiaplasty with the vagina dancers. 
Vaginas, is, uh, vaginas are still everywhere. That's important follow. <laughs> Thank you, Nick, for that uh, brief update on the stories that, that we used to do. All right, so... <laughs> So that clip you just saw, uh, we, we were actually quite pres- prescient. We actually, uh, we actually created stories that, that had their own momentum and actually came, uh, created, fulfilled their own pros- prophecy, and that was one of them. This is a sketch predicting tonight that we did at the end of Season 3. The Hungry Beast Stay Spectacular with all of your favourite segments. It's Topicality Live. Vaginas, they're everywhere. Labiaplasty with the Vagina Dancers. Mox Pops with all your favourite characters. When was the last time you were in a fight? I was in a pub. I glassed a guy and uh, I was a girl, actually. Victoria Dynamite is explosive. All the best live graphics with the Beast File. Google, they want to own your email, your computer and your entire digital life. Google, trying very hard not to be evil. This show must be seen to be believed. The Hungry Beast stage spectacular. It's a little bit bullshit, but a lot entertaining. Very good. People... Didn't, didn't people actually try and buy tickets to that? When we put it at the end of the final season, didn't people try and buy tickets uh, yeah, to that show? Yeah, I think people tried to people find, find it. They went to the Rudy Hill RSL to see if they could get tickets for it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, pretty well. All right. So just wanted to kind of elaborate on where we, we spoke a little bit about Pat and his enormous success. Now, we, since doing this show, this is a very special group of people. Um, we've all had pretty much, after this show finished, we all had pretty good gigs doing what we love pretty much for the last 10 years. We've made more TV, created award-winning formats that sold around the world, won Walkleys, won Logies, won Emmys, ran for Parliament, some worked for big marquee shows in Australian news and current affairs, produced work for huge media outlets overseas. Some of us, even today, are still hosting youth radio despite being well into their 30s. So um, that's really good too. So... I want to kind of, um, I want to kind of get a, uh, catch us all up briefly on kind of where, what you've been doing the last 10 years and where you are now. Well, it's interesting, like, you listing all of those things because that was the entire purpose of the project. You know, we say we spent um, a month uh, in, like, training, you know, all up in a hotel, and that wasn't because we wanted to make Hungry Beast. It was, like, this next generation of media professionals that um, Andrew and Andy and uh, all of the bigwigs um, in the... the silverbacks, we call them. The silverbacks, yeah, yeah. And, um, and it succeeded, much to their credit. And, yeah, as uh, Dan said, I'm uh, 34 and I host a youth radio show, so still talk about schoolies, (laughs) which is cool. Tell me more about the MDMA. Um, Yeah, I do it. (laughs) I do acid. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so Lewis and I uh, pretty much during the third season of Hungry Beast got a gig um, at Triple J. So we'd been to school together and then we'd met up again back at Hungry Beast and then we'd done... Uh, we went straight to a radio show and we spent so much time together in the last decade um, and I obviously adore Lewis, he's the best person in the world. The other thing is that I met my husband on the show, Nick. We- yeah. <laughs> That's Funny, like- I, I met your husband on the show too. That's really, yeah. Look. Um, incredible! Like uh, to this, to the very end of the third season, Andrew, De- everyone knew that Veronica and Nick were together, even when they thought that they weren't. Ah. Except for Andrew Denton, uh, <laughs> and Andrew Denton was 
100% sure that Veronica and I were a couple. <laughs> and he w- and I still haven't ruled it out, to be and honest. And at the end, he would still be like, oh, Lewis, um, I see you're entering the room with Veronica. <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, dude, we've been shooting a sketch together. And we all knew that Veronica and Nick had been together for like 18 months, except Andrew. It was great. Let's go around uh, down down the line quickly. Mark, catch everyone up and we've got... Well, I mean, I mean, I... I also love Veronica's husband, Nick, because Nick also created a TV show that I still host to this day, which is called The Feed for SBS. But, uh, and from that, I've done podcasts around the world in the US and I am written a few books and I'm still here. I'm still going, guys. I had some kids. Nick McD. Sure. Oh, hi. I get to talk. Um... <laughs> microphone in his face so many times. You're going up to this moment. (laughs) All right, and Lewis. (laughs) (laughs) Great contribution, McDee. Great contribution. Thank you. Look, I've been writing everyone's coattails. I, I also worked on the feed with, with Mark and Nick. I, I've, I'm cutting on, on You Can't Ask That with, with Kirk. Um... And generally, like, the, the fact that this team has sort of stayed close together has been really kind of special. Like, we've all kind of worked together a lot since this show, and, and this was my first gig. This was my first thing out of... I, I, I did, like, a, a film before this, <laughs> which has the distinction of being the lowest-grossing film of the year it came out, which is rare for an Australian film. <laughs> Australian films are... Famous for not grossing a lot of money. This one grossed the least. Uh, so, so I was like questioning, is this the right industry for me? I don't know if I'm cut out for this. But I got this, this job and, and, uh, and I, I couldn't have been more proud and happy of the work I, I did on it. So, so I've, I've really enjoyed meeting all these people and, and, and being in their world. Yeah. I think uh, we've done me, Veronica, and I do the same stuff. Kirk? Kirk? Um, A lot of the Hungry Beast guys um, work with me. I'm um, with Aaron Smith, who's not here. John Casimir um, created a show called You Can't Ask That. And uh, we're in our fifth season. We just started making it um, the last couple of weeks. Yeah! (laughs) Scott worked worked with us for the first um, three seasons. Um, Nick really designed the edit and um, Nick's I work with Nick a long time and what you've got to know about Nick is you know he's a, a good person to be on your team because he was the first team member who started sleeping at work um, overnight. Though not the last. <clears throat> so you knew he was going to be a hard worker but Nick designed really how, how all these intricate stories came together because we used to do a segment on Hungry Beast which was like a vox pop. We'd go and interview people in the street, ask a universal question and interview people all around the country, bring them back and put these answers together to sort of form, a, form a, an idea bigger than the individual answers. And that, that vox pop really is what influenced what we now make with, with, with You Can Ask That. Take a series of people, ask them all the same questions and juxtapose their answers. And this way of editing all together really was come out of Nick's head. I'm going to ask you three questions. And um, all I need you to do is stand in this little blue section. What is your favourite part of the opposite sex? The penis. How can you not say the penis? It's, be- it's beautiful. That's fantastic. Amazing. That, we're done. Though, um, you were really great. Thank Are you, you so sure? much. So we, yeah. we're, no, you're spot on. 
We've actually edited that down. What was amazing about the Hungry Beast Bogan was that that wasn't a name that we gave her. We found her out in Campbelltown. And um, there's, there's three different types of people as a general rule that you find when you Vox Pop. There's, there's someone that you interview that has almost nothing to say. There's this, the second type of person that doesn't really have much to say, but one question you ask, they completely nail. And then you find someone there, it doesn't matter what you ask, they completely nail it. And, and she nailed everything that she said. And um, there was a Facebook page that was built um, around her called The Hungry Beast Bogan. And there's the question we asked, which is, what's your favourite body part of the opposite sex? Is about to feature in our next season of uh, You Can't Ask That in our nudist episode. Um, so it, 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 re- it, it lives. Oh. And you've got another, you've got another, you're doing another episode of You Can't Ask That? You're doing another season of You Can't Ask That? Yes. Have you got a taste of that for us? We have. Here it is. <laughs> Do you remember the TV show Hungry Beast? Never heard of it. No. Think so. No. What? No. No, 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 no. Never heard of it. <laughs> no, that's an old concept, isn't it? <laughs> no, we've heard a few old people sort of say about that sort of thing. What is that? <laughs> we've never, ever seen it. Ever. I've got better things to do in my life. Oh, because it's a trick question. Oh, perfect. That would be absolutely perfect. Great, can't wait for that one. <laughs> Thank you, Kirk. That was great. Dan, catch, catch everyone up on, on what you've been doing since, since Hungry Beast finished. Yeah. Um, so I, it was really important for me to come uh, today because I think, yeah, Ronnie, as you were saying, this was about you know, bringing up the next generation of uh, you know, people for the, you know, the Australian media scene. And what I discovered was I was just too lazy like, I just learned that I was garbage at it. So, yeah, I kind of haven't really been in that scene. I, I... But you ran for Parliament. Yes. So I've done some interesting... I've loved my life. It's just that <laughs> I, I was a really shit journo. Um, is, and... is Parliament a better place for lazy people? Is uh, that what you're saying? Yeah, well, that's Can a we good quote you on that directly? Um, so, yeah, so I've done... Uh, Things I've loved. So if you've ever been subjected to mathletics, you can blame me. Um, You know, I've worked in VR and augmented reality sort of stuff. But one story that I do want to follow up on is, um, you know, I used to do a lot about my genitalia because we were a youth show and it was about, well, let's talk about sex. Um, And, you know, I promoted that my large pants help my fertility. Well, in fact, uh, I got testicular cancer, so maybe there's a link there. So, uh, in fact, it kind of lowered that. But, hey, you know, it's all for science. (laughs) That's right, because we did a story where... Because I used to wear famously tight pants as a Melbourneian in 2009. And it was very in at the time, right? Yeah, and so you and I swapped pants for a few weeks and then we had to go and jack off in a cup for television. (laughs) That's right. Forget it. And it's not the last right. time I've jacked off in a cup for television, yeah. but hopefully it's the last. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I need to follow that. Um, <laughs> can, hey, can I can I go and get another beer? Then? Well, actually, uh, well, uh, well, one person in this in this room actually is is good at getting that stuff. Um, it, is Mark Humphreys here? Uh, where's Mark Humphreys? Oh yeah, so Mark Humphreys, uh, who you may know from uh, ABC Seven Thirty, uh, he actually used to be our intern. Uh, so if you could go and get a couple of beers, that'd be great, Mark. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. I'll take the house white. Thank you. All right, we're 
Look, we might just cut to the um, uh, one serious part. One, one bloke who isn't with us tonight is Kieran, is Kieran Ricketts, who's a producer and a journalist, and he was pretty extraordinary. He passed away at the beginning of the year and was um, a really tenacious guy. What, what, what are some of your memories of, of Kieran? I remember uh, after one of those story meetings we said that was just like an absolute um, jungle of people fighting over stories and everything that um, Ricketts, Ricketts and I had a, had a story rejected and I remember uh, we went out for a drink after work and we just got so fired up that no, this story was good and it, we could get this up, we could really get this up and I remember going back to the office with him and being in there till sort of 11 with him, just working this thing up, working this thing up, so there was no way it was not going to get up and going in the morning and pitching it and getting it up. And, um, yeah, you know, he, he, um, you know, he, wasn't, he didn't, wasn't there for the whole series. He left after season two. But, you know, while he was with us, he was a real battler. Um, at all times and really fought for his ideas. I think the other one was that he put so much of himself into the stories that he loved as well and there was the, the glassing story that was clearly so pivotal to him and who he was. And, um, Which yeah, was for people who didn't see it, he was glassed and then he went back to the town, his hometown, where he was glassed and, uh, and went back to sort of find the... Well, not find the people, but go back to the place where he'd been glassed not that long earlier. We've got a little sample of that story. In June last year, a 22-year-old student was beaten up here, then ran across the road to the Coolangatta police station for help. It was closed. In fact, it's only ever open until 4pm Monday to Friday. Yeah, Rick, it's pretty, pretty great guy. Uh, we, this is a great show. You've all bought a ticket tonight and all the proceeds from tonight's show are going to go to the Walkley Foundation, which Kieran would have loved, but also the company that made this show, CJZ, also gave $500 to Black Dog Institute as well tonight. So thank you all for being part of, of this show and Kieran's legacy. Um, we got a little segment called The Producers. Could, um, is, could Andy Neal come up and, uh, and uh, Georgie and Nathan uh, just come up on stage? Just come, come over this. You guys on that side, if you guys can stand up. And if Andy and... Um... Just got a drink delivery. <laughs> Mark Humphreys. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mate. Yep. Yep. Great. 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 And uh, is anyone here? Nikita, are you here? Oh, yeah, great. Come, yeah, come on up. Come up on stage. Yeah, great. And we'll quickly spend five minutes with these guys before we wrap up the show because these guys are the backbone of the show. Um... Oh, Jess is here too. Great, great, fantastic. Andrew, Andrew, yeah, Andrew, Andrew Denton is here, but he doesn't want to go up on stage. It's okay. <laughs> but we've got a special surprise later on for that. All right. Terrific. All right, so... You folks were responsible for wrangling 20 young idiots. Uh, this is not your first rodeo, Andy. You've done this with shows like this in the past. What was it like or what was different with, with Project Next or Hungry Beast? Uh, I think the, the absolute scale of it uh, as far as the, re the recruitment process to start with, while you guys you know, managed to complete that application form, 16,000 people downloaded that application. 16,000 downloaded? 16,000 people downloaded that application form. Only 1,600 actually got round to put it in because it was such an onerous application <laughs> form. Of those, only three, 1,330 got it in on time, so the rest just went in the bin. So, and then it got distilled down to 60 of you who got interviewed. So 
this, the scale of the recruitment of the people of, of Australia to try to get who are the people with the most creative ideas that we could find. So. And Georgie, for you, like, what was one of the standout moments for producing Hungry Beasts with us? Um, well, I think in, in general, everyone's commitment um, and dedication to the idea behind Hungry Beast was an overall sort of um, general memory about it because it made producing it so sort of enjoyable and easy. But the Canberra the musical was a big highlight um, because we're, we were obviously all sort of similar ages and it was like being on school camp <laughs> while sort of um, attempting to run the school camp as well um, and, and get it all done in the time that we had down there. So that was, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Are you responsible for the bobsled? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, that... <laughs> the both, um, so, yeah, prior to Hungry Beast, I worked on Enough Rope and um, was working with, with Andrew on Enough Rope and would be asked to get very sort of obscure things occasionally for guests, like a theremin for um, Bill Bailey and very obscure books. So I, I, I felt, um, yeah, well-trained in getting those kind of things that you would just slide into the scripts like a bobsled. <laughs> you know, as someone who would write scripts for, like, onerous scripts to produce, I was always so thrilled and excited that uh, I got to sit down with Georgie and Nikita and, and Jess and give them these scripts and they would say yes to pretty much every everything and they'd find a way to get it made. I don't think we were ever allowed to say no. <laughs> I, remember, yeah. I remember Lewis once arguing with me because he really wanted uh, a, what was it, like a, lec- a lecture hall that was specifically maritime law. And I was like, okay, well, I guess I've got, I've got just a, like a lecture hall. And he's like, it's not a maritime one. So I literally had to find a maritime law like lecture theatre. And I did. And it looked like exactly the same as any other lecture theatre. <laughs> Shut up, it's the producer's turn. <laughs> but I think, I think there was one thing that was really weird, like, great, was that everyone, like, every, we were all the same age and there was this, some weird distinction between, obviously, the Beast and us, but you guys were all so confident and I think it instilled so much confidence in us to do, like, what we could do and actually, like, I remember we, when we did Climate Scientists, I'd organise all this stuff, like the cheerleaders, everything, except I forgot to book the studio. (laughs) And I walked in and the head of the ABC was like, we're booked maintenance. And I was like, oh, it was like 6am, no one else was there. And I was like, oh, I I, I checked my emails and I hadn't confirmed it, but I just bluffed. (laughs) And I was like, I definitely booked it. I definitely did. We're making television, not maintenance. Fantastic. But that was not because of you guys. We're so confident. Amazing. We were all faking it, so... <laughs> Nath, you, before this show, you worked on The Chaser. What was it... How was it different working with us versus The Chaser? <laughs> um... <laughs> you guys had no fucking idea what you were doing. Uh, uh, there are two, um... The two greatest dinner party stories I have in my life are, one, I was responsible for the Apex stunt. (laughs) Two, I taught Mark Fennell how to walk and talk. (laughs) 
I Aaron, I Aaron Sorkin that motherfucker for you, and he has never, ever, ever let me down. Um, I, I mean, it was just going from one, um, one kindergarten to the other, wasn't it, Andy? Really? I mean, I mean, the Chaser guys were a couple of years ahead of me, and you guys were. A couple of years behind, and so I, I went from being sort of the, the the junior apprentice on the chaser to the master the sensei, sort of the yeah. senior master, Mister Miyagi. Yeah. Uh, uh, Please teach bees. us how to get arrested by the AFP. Yeah, Please. that's right. This is how you get thrown through a plate glass window, folks. You've got to go with the shoulder. Um, uh, it was fantastic. It really was a wonderful, wonderful. Jess, you came to the show season three. Was it? Oh no. Oh, Nikita, oh, sorry. Oh. Jess, Jess was there from no, the beginning. No, you were, sorry, you were there the from beginning. the very start with the auditions. Yeah, I what? was the one receiving the Veronica Milsom's postcards, getting wooed. I absolutely, was what was it like getting postcards week. for Veronica Milsom? It was wonderful, you know. It was, it was a highlight. And it was a pretty overwhelming task to sift through all of these applications which were far beyond anything I could actually do myself. So I thought, how did I get into this position? <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a privilege. Do you, have any fond, do you have any memories of seeing an application of someone that made it into the show and going, oh, they're not going to get in? Or, or, or they are going to get in? Do you have oh, there was one, one particular rogue guy that didn't get in but got close and he actually knocked on the door of the office and came and interviewed me, pinned me down into this, like, the conference room and turned the interview around on me which was terrifying and very impressive, and that certainly made him stand out. Wow. He, he was, and we now Mark Latham is a, in politics. His name was Sam, <laughs> Sam Worthington, I think his name was. <laughs> um, he's, well, he's, he's on the project. Well, uh, please thank the producers of the show. That's really great. <laughs> Look, there's one producer who, who couldn't make it tonight, unfortunately. Um, Andrew Denton is sitting in the audience and not on stage. Uh, so I, what I want you to do is if you have a microphone and you do a good Andrew impression, could we bring him on stage with us? Uh, what's, the one best, what's the best bit of advice Andrew ever gave you, is, is my question. I, I love constantly when we first started. He, Andrew made this space an incredible space for us to be ourselves. And he had a motto that he would say pretty much every day of production, which was, I just want you to be aggressively you. <laughs> and for me, that, that was the enormous gift. It was a license to kind of run free and just think of the biggest, boldest, baddest thing we could. And I love that. There's uh, actually, yeah, a Andrew, so much of his advice uh, was incredible at the time, but is so much more potent the more time goes on. And one that he used to say to us at the top when we first started was all, it's a privilege to be on the National Broadcaster. <laughs> I, used to, I used to think he used to say it was a privilege to be on the National Broadcaster because they never paid anything. <laughs> um, I remember he used to say when he was disappointed about our output on scripts, he used to say, we need more scripts, more fuel, fuel for the, the fire. fire. More fuel. <laughs> There is one that I have actually found myself playing. Sorry, I just, I just popped up. It's the thing I do. <laughs> Mate, you just can't I, walk and talk. It's yeah. just one of those things. Let me see. No, uh, there, is, there is actually one that I have... Yeah, okay. And one step in front of the other. No, there's one thing that I actually... Because I work... And Nick and I have both worked with a lot of young people, people that are younger than us, and I find myself using it all the time, which is the best opportunity is the one that is right in front of you, which is you are doing a job right now which may not necessarily be everything you want it to be, but if you can do an incredible job with it, people will take notice. And that actually has proven correct 
time and time and time again. And it's something that I, I've taken with me through everything else I've, I've done in, in the world of TV and audio and beyond. And now I'm going to give Veronica back a microphone. <laughs> Oh, I just remember there was one piece of advice when it came to storytelling that I think just rings true forever, which is um, don't tell me what's happening. Oh, what, I can't do remember. It, do it in the voice. No, I can't. I, I'm no good at the Show, voice. But tell. it was don't tell me what it is, show me what it's like. And I thought that was pretty good advice. Yeah, great. I, I've got one and I can't do the voice either, but um, I'd done this interview that was particularly hard to get over the line. It took me a long, long time to do it. It was a very, very sensitive um, interview. And um, I did the interview. I was quite happy with it. And so, I, say it went for an hour long, I did a, a cut down of about 25 minutes of the best bits and I gave it to Andrew. And he's like, no, I want to see the whole interview. Um, so I was very, very nervous about giving the whole interview. Anyway, he watched the interview and, and the feedback was, you've got it. But you shied away from asking the really hard questions. And... Um, you could have gone harder. And I was a bit nervous about asking those hard questions because they were really, really hard questions to ask. But he said, look, you've done the work. You've prepared this person. They've met with you. They've, they've agreed to do the interview and they've come expecting you to ask the hard questions. And it, it's your job in this moment after you've done that work to ask those hard questions. And, and they're prepared to answer those questions for you. And, and it really has... Uh, influenced my work since. Um, our whole show is about asking hard questions <laughs> yeah. and, and really every person who comes on our show, when they come on, they're expecting those questions. We've done the work when they come on and we ask them the hard questions and they're there and prepared to answer them. Yeah, I think uh, one of the bit of advice I loved was when we made the climate science rap. The last coda for the climate science rap just had three kind of non-sequitur jokes and he, we finished it. We spent like a, two weeks of making this rap and Andrew was like, oh, you missed this joke and this joke and this joke. Go reshoot it. I was like, well, it's, already, it's going to air tonight. He's like, just go reshoot it because we're going to put it on the internet and it'll last there forever. And, uh, and I was so pissed off with him. I was like, fucking Andrew, I'm not going to fucking reshoot it. It's going to fucking air. I went and reshot it and I put <laughs> three more jokes that were spot on, on target, that made sense for this piece and uh, I learnt that, that if you can make it better, regardless of whether something's gone to air or not, and you can make it better, you should do that. And um, uh, that was the best advice because it's one of the bits of content that I'm most proud of today. The, the tip that I really liked um, when it came to making TV was to be anything but boring. So... You know, I, I work for 7.30 on the ABC and if I do a story, I, I kind of leave in moments that you wouldn't typically leave in a, a current affairs story. So a moment where someone laughs or makes a mistake or does something that's a bit human that kind of makes you lean forward and pay attention, leave that in rather than take it out. Andy, what about you? Have you ever had any tips from Andrew working with him? You've, you've worked with Andrew since the very early days. Um, yeah, a long time. <laughs> I don't know. It's hard to remember. So many, so many brain cells have disappeared over that time, Dan. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but, um, um, I'd, yeah. No, I'd, I'd say uh, one of the great, the great things about Andrew is that he's uh, a perfectionist and is into making just the best possible TV that, that you can. And, and, and that example of, that you gave of going um, and reshooting and basically getting the best possible TV you can. And also that there are a lot of incredibly talented, incredibly sex, successful people in the world who don't use that power and success to um, give it to young people. 
Like, very few people would choose to do that. That is crazy that like, anyone else who's an Andrew Denton now with that kind of fame and success is not going, how can I find the next generation? No one else is thinking like that. It's crazy how impressive and amazing he is to do that. I'd agree with Lewis. I think one of the most profound pieces of feedback we got was Nick, Nick and I did a, a, a thing about the zombie apocalypse. We showed it to Andrew. He looked at it. He watched it. He watched it again. He looked back at us and he said, I don't get it. And I think... <laughs> That was the moment I thought, wow, this guy's a fucking genius. <laughs> that was such a Nathan Earl answer. <laughs> well, I want to show a bit of your work, Nathan, next. Um, we're, this is the end of the show. Thank you so much for coming to hear us talk about uh, a job we had 10 years ago. <laughs> I don't think, you, I don't think there's, there's not many jobs you get to have that you get to have group therapy with 50 other people. Um, <laughs> But this sketch um, was, is called is Canberra the Musical. Uh, we spent uh, a great weekend down in Canberra. Pretty much every single person uh, on this stage was involved in it. And it, I'd wanted to play it because it's got everyone from the show in it, behind the scenes, in front of the scenes. And we had a, a wonderful time making... Except a few of us. Oh! Where were you? You're not in Canberra the Musical. I was back at uh, CJZ, you know, making the rest of the show, all the serious bits that no one wanted to watch. Thank you. Thank you for your service. With with Mon and Scott. Well, it's the better for it, so we'll move on. Let's play it for you. But first, after missing out on the world's greatest job, Canadian YouTube star Mitch Moffat produced a musical about Melbourne last month with the support of Tourism Victoria. Get your jazz hands ready. Here's a taste. Sure, it's super cheesy stuff, but Melbourne doesn't really need help attracting tourists. However, after Barack Obama postponed his trip to Australia, there is one city that could really do with a musical makeover. I know a magical place where all your dreams come true. If you like space and driving in circles, have I got the place for you. It's Canberra, there's no traffic in Canberra, cause no one lives in Canberra. Meet a soldier or a spy from Maceo Or High Court Justice Bill Gobbo It'll make you wanna see It's close to Kuma. Screaming and a shouting for Canberra. Driving roundabout in Canberra. If you like filling out forms and stuff like that, it's a great place to be a bureaucrat. Even the boss of the USA would like to come just for a day to Canberra. We're in Canberra. Yeah, yeah, it's Canberra. Talking in Canberra. Still driving around Canberra. And if you were stuck in Canberra, we'd come and visit you. Peter Harvey, Canberra.
Thanks, everyone. Thanks for coming out. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.